welcome to episode 43 of Lucretius Today. I'm your host Cassius, and together with my panelists from the EpicureanFriends.com forum, we'll walk you through the six books of Lucretius's poem and discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. Be aware that none of us are professional philosophers, and everyone here is a self-taught Epicurean. We encourage you to study Epicurus for yourself, and we suggest the best place to start is the book Epicurus and His Philosophy by Canadian professor Norman DeWitt. For anyone who's not familiar with our podcast, please check back to episode one for a discussion of our goals and our ground rules. If you have any questions about that, please be sure to contact us at epicureanfriends.com for more information. In today's episode, we'll cover roughly Latin lines 445 through 547 from book three of the poem. The topic will be how the mind is born, grows old, and dies with the body. Now, let's join the discussion with Martin reading today's text. Besides, we perceive the soul is born with the body, grows up with it, and both wax old together. For as children are of a weak and tender body, their mind likewise is of the same frail complexion. As their age improves and their strength is more confirmed, their judgment ripens more and the powers of their mind are more enlarged. But when the body is shaking by the irresistible stroke of time and the limbs fail without strength, the understanding grows lame, the tongue and the mind lose their vigor. All the faculties fail and go away together. The whole nature of the soul therefore must needs be dissolved and scattered like smoke into the air, since we see it is born with the body, increases together with it and with it, as I said before, becomes feeble by age and decays. Add to this, that the body is subject to violent diseases and tormenting pains, so the mind is affected by sharp cares, by griefs and fear, and therefore must equally partake of death and dissolution with it. And then, in great disorders of the body, the mind frequently grows mad, raves and talks widely. Sometimes it is sunk into such a profound and never-ending sleep by a heavy lethargy. The eyes shut and the head nodding, so that neither hears the words nor is able to distinguish the face of those who stand about bedewing their cheeks with tears and striving to recall the departing breath. Wherefore you must needs allow that the mind may be dissolved, since the infection of the disease pierces through it. For grief and diseases are both the causes of death, as we are taught by experience in a thousand instances. And again, why is it when the quick force of wine strikes through a man and the insinuating heat works in all his veins, why follows the heaviness of the limbs? The legs no longer support the reeling body. The tongue falters, the mind is drowned, the eyes swim. Noise, hiccups, brawlings deafen your ears, and many other evils, the consequence of such debauches. How could this be? Did not the impetuous force of the wine distract the soul as it lies diffused through the body? Now, whatever can be thus disturbed and hindered in its operations would, were the force to grow more violent, be destroyed and utterly deprived of future being. Besides, a person surprised with a sudden fit of a disease drops down before our eyes as if he were thunderstruck. He foams, he groans and trembles all over. He is distracted, stretches his nerves, is distorted. He pants, he tosses and tires his limbs with strange and unnatural postures. The reason is because the force of the disease, driven violently through the limbs, agitates and disturbs the mind as the foaming waves of the sea are enraged by the strong blast of winds. And then groans are forced from the bridge, because the limbs are tormented with pain, and the seeds of the voice are thrown out from the bottom of the breast, and hurried in confusion, without any distinct accent through the mouth. 
The man raves because the powers of the mind and soul are distracted and their principles, as I said, broken, disjoint and divided by the violence of the distemper. But when the cause of the disease gives way and the black humor of the corrupt body retires into some convenient vessel, then the patient begins to rise, feeble and staggering, and by degrees returns to all his senses and recovers life. Since therefore his soul is so tossed about with such strange disorders and labors with such agonies in so miserable a manner as it is enclosed in the body, how do you think it can subsist without the body in the open air and exposed forever to the raging fury of all the winds? And uh, since we see the mind can be made sound and uh, be affected by the powers of medicine as well as the disordered body, this is a strong evidence that the mind is mortal. For whoever attempts to make any alteration in the mind or offers to change the nature of any other thing must either add some new parts to it or take off some of the old or else transpose the former order and situation. But what is immortal can have nothing added to it or taken from it, nor will admit of any change in the order of its parts. For whatever is so altered as to leave the limits of its first nature is no more what it was, but instantly dies. The mind, therefore, whether it is distempered or relieved by medicine, shows, as I observed, strong symptoms of its mortality. So evidently does the true matter of fact overthrow all false reasoning, that there is no possibility to escape its force and the contrary opinion is either way fully refuted. Besides, we often see men perish by degrees and lose their vital sense limb by limb. First, the nails and toes grow black, then the feet and legs rot. At length, the traces of cold death proceed on step by step over the other parts of the body. Since therefore the soul is divided and does not at such a time continue whole and entire, you must pronounce it mortal. But if you think the soul retires out of the dying members into the more inward parts of the body and contracts its seeds into one place and so withdraws the sense from the rest of the limbs, yet that place to which the soul retreats and where so much of it is crowded together ought to enjoy a more lively and brisker sense. But since there is no such place, it is plain, as we said before, it is scattered piecemeal through the air and therefore perishes. But suppose we grant which is false in itself, and allow that the soul may be huddled up together in the bodies of those who die uh, one limb after another, yet then the soul must be confessed to be by nature mortal. For it signifies not whether the soul dies scattered through the air or perishes with its part contracted into one place, while the senses steal away from the whole body more and more and the powers of life by degrees appear less and less. Thank you for reading all of that, Martin. It seems to me particularly appropriate to hear all of that coming from you. You sound like sort of a German doctor lecturing us in some uh, <laughs> in some classroom somewhere. It's, that's that's very helpful, and thank you very much. So, where do we begin? Well, I just gotta say it's kind of depressing. <laughs> this section, we're all just gonna disintegrate and get old and stupid. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> what a way to start the day. <laughs> It seems to me in reading some other, I don't know why I mentioned this right now, but I've, I've read when I was first looking into Lucian, I ran into Lucan, the Roman poet, and I read uh, his his poem on, I think it's called Pharsalia about mm, the, 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 the Roman the, Civil War. Yes. Yes. The Roman Civil War. And the reason I make that comment now is it is amazing. It's, He'll go paragraph after paragraph about slashing arms, slashing feet, slashing ears and blood spurting everywhere. And it's just amazingly uh, graphic in describing yeah. the battle scenes. It's like he's really just enjoying describing all of the, the detail that really seems to me to have no purpose whatsoever except to try to gross you out with the horrors of war, I guess. But 
Nevertheless, yeah. that's kind of the effect here with them reading all of these things about toes turning black and so forth. Yeah. It's very quotable, though. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, very yeah. quotable. What were you about to say, Charles? Oh, just um, I've read bits and sections of the Pharsalia before. Lugan, great writer. It's just that he died very early. Yeah, these Roman epic poems certainly are a very significant part of our history. What strikes me about the the whole section is very, very similar. Again, I think I mentioned this last time to current writings about how the, the mind is a function of matter and not some supernatural thing that's living in the body. And they use these same kinds of examples about how the clearly, you know, if you get a brain tumor or dementia or whatever, what you think of as you is changed. You know, but it's all it just strikes me this morning for the first time. This argument is always made from the standpoint of deterioration. I don't know if you could make the argument from the standpoint of enhancement, because I don't guess we know we know how to do that. But it would be kind of cool if we could ever say, well, look, here we have just this ordinary person and they they have uh, had their brain power made much more amazing and that wasn't what they started with nobody ever goes that way (laughs) that's right when you're saying that there's the one sentence in here and and since we see the mind can be made sound and be affected by the powers of medicine that's i suppose a positive reference there but in this long stretch of things that's the only thing that's even halfway positive (laughs) yeah well, the last sentence of that paragraph is pretty important, and I guess we could consider it a positive. Which one? Uh, so evidently does the true matter of fact overthrow all false reasoning that there is no possibility to escape its force, and the contrary opinion is either way fully refuted of those um, immortality of the mind. Now, Charles, that's one of the – I think throughout these passages today, there are – sentences that are particularly significant and that was one that I was definitely going to point out mm-hmm. not so much but not so much for its effect on this argument about the mind and the soul being mortal but just for its sort of epistemological value because he's talking he's kind of throwing in this canonical reasoning principle that the truth of facts can be so evident to you that they that's the way you overthrow false opinions Mm-hmm. And I've seen this. I think this is this may be sort of an allusion to something we commented recently about in the forum is that Philodemus talks about inconceivability as sort of a standard of proof or standard of evidence and where you separate something you should have confidence in from something you don't. And it sounds to me like almost that he's talking about that here, that there's no possibility to escape the force of this of this conclusion. So it's it's interesting to me that that I think that's a sentence that probably goes in a collection of epistemology text references there that you've got such a force of evidence that the contrary opinion is just inconceivable. So I would say our modern take on this is slightly different, uh, but only a little bit, you know, not not by enough to make a lot of difference. So the uh, Carl Sagan gets kind of popular credit for saying extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm -hmm. But it was actually a French mathematician. Is it Laplace? I don't know how to say I'm not French. How do you pronounce that? L-A-P-L-A-C-E. 
No, not plus. No plus is not plus. Okay, all right. Who said the weight of evidence for an extraordinary claim must be proportioned to its strangeness? And I think that applies here. I, I think to say something's inconceivable, we don't necessarily close that off. We're like, well, we're now at the point where we know so much. We have so much weight of evidence for what we're saying that you're going to have to come up with something amazing to even introduce your claim into the conversation. But for practical purposes, it's the same. Right. It's just right. inconceivable that, like, right now there's a unicorn in my living room that I don't see, <laughs> but it's invisible. I just don't believe in it. But I, I could go on and say it's an extraordinary claim. You better bring me some extraordinary proof. But to say it's inconceivable, I'm fine with that, too. That's going to be a continuing topic of conversation as long as we're talking about Epicurean philosophy, I suppose, because I think that that really goes to the way people think in ordinary life and to the question about, and I think Cicero talks about it in terms of, is probability the only thing we have in life, or is there a way to go beyond probability? and say at some point that something is certain. I'm not suggesting that I know what the answer to that question is, but I think that's another way to ask the same question. Is that the way, Elaine, that you would suggest that somebody consider the state of their living room, that there is a one in a million chance that there's well, a, 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 a unicorn? Well, it's such a small chance that it's, that it's, you know, I couldn't even put a number on it. I mean, so it's close enough to zero that I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I'm a pragmatist. I think I've mentioned that before in the... I am not bothered that there's a point where 100% certainty, I think, is imaginary. But I'm not bothered by that whatsoever. And so I think for pragmatic terms, I'm perfectly happy saying I'm 100% certain. I'm going to take the responsibility for saying this, but I heard somebody else say on an earlier podcast that one cliche that you can use to encapsulate that is, Close enough for government work. Yes. I don't know who yeah, else has heard yeah. that besides me. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly the, the thing. I mean, what what we're going to base our decisions on is to me, you know, if, if you feel certain and confident about something and, there, and it would really be totally bizarre to think otherwise, go on and take action on it. I, but I think a skeptic gets obsessed. I don't know oh, that yes. I'm going to factually say anything that different from them. But they get obsessed with that uncertainty to the point of absurdity. And I just don't think it's worth worrying about. You know, Elaine, a lot of us know people in the world who have problems with anxiety. Yes. And I'm not sure that that isn't related to what we're talking about right now. Oh, it is. And, you know, we had actually a conversation on, on your page. I posted something this morning. The intuitive thing about anxiety is that you should reassure people with evidence, that you should show them that what they're worried about is not the case. But it doesn't work for people with anxiety. If you reassure them, they tend to become more anxious. The only reason we know that is because the research question has been asked. And so if, if you have a kid that's worried about monsters and you reassure them, they get more worried. Whereas if you just say something like, oh, that's interesting. I remember being worried about monsters when I was your age. And just don't act like their anxiety is worrying you. Just you're not worried about the monsters, but you're also not worried about them being worried about it. They, they drop it. So Epicurus seems to believe that the way to reassure people's anxieties is to is to um, give them proof and uh, to a certain amount, you know, to really satisfy their minds. It doesn't work. 
It doesn't work with everybody. It probably works with some people, but not with everybody. Right. So if you have a person who is so anxious that they cannot tolerate the slightest bit of uncertainty, you're not going to remove that with more reassurance. That's pathologic. You have to go about it a different way. No, it's not related to anxiety. Um, I saw this tweet. Oh, my God. It was hilarious about how this person once believed that you could change anybody's mind if you show them evidence and somebody replied to him (laughs) saying, actually, there have been multiple studies proving that this isn't the case. And yes, then the person evidence. replied, and the person replied, well, I still believe it's true. Yes, oh, my God. <laughs> Charles, that is wonderful. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Elaine, I, love I think it. I think we've swerved into a topic here that really deserves much more treatment than we've given it already. It may, be, it yeah. may deserve putting on a list of articles that need to be written at some point, because clearly... There are a, there's a segment of society, a segment of people out there who have this situation. They, they are not going to be reassured by additional data and yeah. additional data probably thrown at them just makes them more anxious than it did before. Now, yeah. that doesn't mean to me that we that that doesn't mean to me that we just across the board stop this approach, because I'm convinced that a, a lot of people, maybe even a majority of people are sort of rational and balanced enough that they're looking for evidence to fit into a rational conclusion. And so this this approach that we're doing is probably the dominant approach and probably the normal approach that everybody should be started with when they're young. But there are going to be some number of people, and I don't know how you identify those people, but once you do identify them, there needs to be a different approach to it. So... um, Oh, yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that most people who do not have pathologic anxiety do not require the removal of 100 percent of doubt. It's just not the case. They're willing to accept the preponderance of the evidence and move on. Mm -hmm. That's the typical human response to evidence that they don't. Most people are not obsessed with the possible, you know, this this tiny, tiny, tiny possibility that there's something really crazy going on that would make all this wrong but some people have that you're not going to persuade those people by just saying you can be absolutely certain about this trust me or this is definitely the way it is that won't work they require a different approach and by saying that I'm, i'm saying that we don't have to worry about typical people being alarmed if we admit that yeah there's it's okay that there's this tiny remote possibility that this huge weight of evidence is wrong, but we don't think it's worth worrying about. Do you see where I'm I'm going? I do. I do. I do. Yeah. I was just adding that like, if there is this tiny, tiny chance of like this whole thing being flipped because of uh, one little difference. Yeah. Why isn't that the case already? When there are so many other examples, whether it's, you know, science, biology, physics. Yeah. That's more weight of evidence that we're not seeing. It's just like what Lucretia said in the beginning. We're not seeing all these bizarre things happen. By now, mm-hmm. we, should have, we should have seen it done, but it hadn't happened yet. So I find that plenty of sufficient evidence. And I think I think he's making some great arguments here in this passage that are still being made. These are still the arguments being made. And before we go back to the details of the passage, yeah. I, this comes to my mind, is that I've always – for years now, it's been one of my focuses that there are people who are interested in Epicurean philosophy only for the aspect of they, they read somewhere that 
that uh, the biggest, the greatest pleasure is the absence of pain, and they mm-hmm. are looking for things to deal with their pain. That's the only aspect of the philosophy they're interested in. They're not interested in anything else. And so there's sort of a need to deal with that uh, segment of people who get into the philosophy and then just monopolize it to some extent on, on that issue alone and then leave all the rest of it totally unappreciated and totally undeveloped. And this may be a, a sort of analogous to that is that there is going to be a segment of people who can still profit from Epicurean philosophy, but they are just not going to profit from the accumulation of data approach. They need to yeah. be dealt with through another way. And uh, I'm not sure I even know how to begin to do with that. But clearly, Epicurus was interested in compassionate in everybody. And if someone is in a, in a situation where they approach life from such a different position that the data approach is not suited to being successful within, then it requires some interesting thought about what approaches might be more effective for them, not resulting in the neglect of the, of the body of the work, but yeah. segmenting out an, or a particular type of person who, who basically needs a, a little bit different understanding. What do you think? What do you think that would, would be, what are your ideas and how that would be? I didn't say I had any ideas at the moment. I find that to be a particularly <laughs> troubling and particularly uh, it, something that we really need to give some thought to that will be beyond the scope of what we can deal with today. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, what comes to mind, of course, is you, you were saying some of those things is that that's the Plato approach of the noble myth and so forth. Is is that what you want to do? Is that what those people want who don't appreciate data? I, I don't think that's the right approach either. I don't think you're suggesting mm-hmm. that at mm-hmm. all. If I grasp a thread of what you were suggesting, you were saying that people who are overly anxious about certainty just needs sort of a general reassurance and not data. You sounded like you have some particular experience in dealing with particular types of people. So no, they don't need general reassurance. That's exactly what I'm saying is wrong. Reassurance does not help them because they are that what their pathology is, is that they're different from typical humans and that they have this idea that they can't tolerate uncertainty. And so what you teach them is that to uh, experience uncertainty first in small ways, you know, less threatening ways, and then you build up so that they learn it doesn't actually kill them and they can still enjoy life. And then they, they actually quit worrying about uncertainty as much. So it's a real it's a real interesting process. There's a, a good body of evidence for it that reassurance makes them more anxious. Double down yeah. on their uncertainty. Yeah. You, you know, okay, here's another premise of my approach to Epicurean philosophy, which is that if something can be learned through practical experience by us, then Epicurus and the ancient Epicureans probably learned the same lesson. So I was I would expect then that within the Epicurean text there would be a, a recognition that this is not going to work with some people, and so we might eventually be able to yeah. find some hints about what they were doing as well. Maybe that's the issue with opening the Lucretius's poem by talking about the gods. Maybe there's just some kind of, and I'm not suggesting that's the way to do it either, but I feel confident that if we can observe that accumulations of data are not effective with everybody, then surely Epicurus observed the same thing and there would be other approaches within within his uh, 
Maybe maybe they just need more honey around the rim of the glass. Well, that's it. I, I, what about <laughs> that, Elaine? Does honey around the rim? Uh, so, does that... uh, actually, I mean, really, this is this is, an, is this is an area of science. So this is an area where we've got data instead of having to go by our intuitions. And the intuitive thing for anxious people is to reassure them. We have evidence that makes them more anxious. So the way to proceed is to act like their anxiety doesn't worry you. You are able to tolerate their anxiety, right, without trying to talk them out of it or reassure it. And you just move on and you enjoy life. And mm. and they maybe. learn they can do that, too. And then they just quit focusing on it. So maybe. I think. Hold, th- hold on. Those, I, uh-huh. I think maybe we could look at that. And point to the um, the famous quote that uh, death is nothing to us. Okay, say more. Um, because it's it, I mean it's such a obvious and common fear and source of anxiety for a lot of people even to this day. And you so, think the nothing nothing to us is sort of a way of implementing it's it's not significant. Let's move on. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly what Elaine is saying. Mm-hmm. Well, so you don't, so you don't, so you don't say the monsters are nothing to us. You mm. say, oh, you're worried about monsters. Isn't that interesting? I used to worry about that. So for them, you'd say, you know, some people worry about death. I don't really worry about it, but I remember when I used to worry about it. And you just move on, you move on that way. So you, you acknowledge their fear, but you don't, uh, you don't actually try to solve it. You just change the subject? Um, yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't dwell on it. You're just like, yeah, it's like that. Oh, yeah, you're scared of thunder. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and, and then you and then you move on. They're able they're much more able to move on if you just say, well, that's how it is right now. You're worried. And you okay, let's solve it. Let's let's solve this problem by turning okay. to, to Martin. <laughs> Martin, do you have an answer for this problem? Do you have any commentary on this part? What we're discussing. I'm out of my expertise here. <laughs> okay, well, we better come back to that in the future. But I, th- I do think that's something we should uh, make a note of and, and come back to because I mean that's uh, a strategy question, mm-hmm. and right. I don't think Epicurus would have any trouble taking advantage of research on what strategies work. So, but, well, yeah. I'm going to still go further with you there and say that I think that it, it is something that anxiety has been around a long time, and yes. I suspect that some of what we can find there, and may, maybe the, you know, one thing that we do see repeated in, in DeWitt's commentary about Epicurus is that he's very concerned about the proper attitude. Maybe maybe what you're talking about to some extent is sort of an attitude adjustment response rather than a uh, a data driven response. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well we'll never get through this section today if we ex- if we extend that too much further <laughs> today. Let's go ahead and uh, maybe go to the second paragraph of what we've discussed today so far and and plan to come back to that in the future or just keep an eye on on what we're reading and see yeah. if we have aspects of that that come up. What about, okay, the second paragraph is that disorders of the body create disorders of the mind and the infectious diseases of the body pierce the mind and that mind-altering substances affect, you know, the whole body. Yeah, yeah. The mind that's part of the body with the wine. 
Yeah, they mentioned wine. I'm getting the idea that these guys back in the ancient period were really interested in the effect of wine on the body and how wine creates uh, disorder in the mind, because apparently there are other references in some of the fragments out there about wine. And then Epicurus talking, one of the Vatican sayings I think he does about a man in his cups, how you treat him. And it's a very difficult one to understand because the text is kind of corrupted, I think the commentators say. So at any rate. Yeah. So, well, he's 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 showing he's proposing a physical mechanism for this substance, but in the wine to affect the body and the mind at the same time. Right. And uh, yeah, that's how right. it is. <laughs> let's, let's let's move to the next passage, starting with now whatever that can be disturbed and hindered would starts up with a grow, seizure. <laughs> yes, if the force would grow more violent, it would be destroyed. Yeah. Wow. So I, I mean, I think this person is having a seizure that he's describing the foaming and uh, the distorted postures. So what did they believe about seizures at that time? They weren't thinking demon possession, right? Or like there was a period of time where people thought that. But I wonder what they thought seizures were caused by when he was around. I don't have an answer to that. Possibly because in the Bible there were references to 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 uh, not not to epilepsy but uh, to uh, uh, the possibility Ooh. that uh, the demons can get into people. Yeah. Well, now let's yeah. Right. Now you're referring to the biblical area as opposed to the Greeks who were a little bit more advanced in my view than some of the biblical stuff. But you're right. You're right. Yeah, I, I I don't have anything concrete to say on it but i do know that it, it was something they talked about we probably have to look to like hippocrates or Asclepiades. yeah i mean julius caesar had epilepsy right mm-hmm. so there was a discussion mm-hmm. about his condition I, I don't remember what it was though is it real or just from the movie can anybody validate that i i thought it was true that Ep- julius caesar was well documented to have had epilepsy and, and would have seizures does anybody else have um that? i don't know no i I had not heard that. I thought uh, maybe I picked but that up. But you know so. more, much more mm-hmm. about history than I do. I'm not a... It's, uh, it's saying here that it's um, he may have suffered from strokes, not epilepsy. Okay, well, that's, yeah, the first article that comes up on Google says that. But yes, I think the reason the way they write the title like that when they say not epilepsy is that I think that there must be something in the, in the Roman text about uh, him having epilepsy on a regular basis or yeah. something. Anyway, all right. Um, so Hippocrates uh, proposed that the source of epilepsy was natural. The word epilepsy comes from the Greek, as do, I guess, a lot of medical. Yeah, terms. yeah. And I, I guess I raised Julius Caesar because I'm understanding that, that it was commonly thought that he had epilepsy, but I haven't ever read that anybody thought he was demon-possessed. I, oh, I, right, I, right. I, I associate the demon possession like, like Martin does with, with the Bible and, and demons cast out of the people into the pigs or something like that, if I remember mm. correctly, one of those stories. Mm, yes, yes, yes. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, then that passage, that paragraph probably has been covered enough. And then the next passage has the the comment that Charles made about how the true matters of fact overthrow false reasoning. But what else does it have in it? Anything? Well, I was wondering if... um... Oh, yes. Go ahead, Charles. But there's an important... uh, something else important in that passage. I haven't been able to sort of formulate into an actual talking point, but... um... 
it's definitely an opposition, and I think we can still use it as a direct opposition to people who believe that the soul or the mind is, or particularly the mind is immortal over matter and body. Yeah, yeah, that immortality aspect of it is what I was going to comment on. Um, he's getting pretty philosophical there because he's talking about that anytime something changes, that mm-hmm. means it cannot be immortal because something that's immortal is not going to change. So he's kind of he's kind of looking at the definition of immortality and working on that. Well, I, I, yeah, I took that as a bit more of a semantical difference that um, not necessarily word games, but playing around and changing of uh, definitions and uh, observations and conclusions to arrive at the idea that the mind is immortal when he is very clearly counteracting that with observable evidence. This little line in here is real interesting to me where he says, uh, for whatever is so altered as to leave yes. the limits of its first nature is no more what it was, but instantly dies. So yes. I guess he means that if humans just get so far beyond like a, a certain point of the human form that they can't live, but it also could be taken that it may be going too far, but to say, you know, if the person I am now has been altered a good bit from who I was 30 years ago, and maybe that person isn't here anymore. But I don't know if he would. I don't know if he would go quite yeah. that far. Now, see, Elaine, that's the one I was going to comment on, and and I would direct that sort of to Martin. Martin, is that not just an echo of some of this uh, philosophy of being and non-being, and whatever is altered is to leave the limits of its first nature is no more what it was, but instantly dies. That's one of those very allegedly deep arguments, is it not, about being and non being and change and and all right. that stuff right that you're the, always like dying from what you were like one second before or not being yeah, able to step yeah, in the you, same river exactly twice. exactly yeah. can't step in the same river again martin yeah. do you remember anything that would would be parallel to that uh, no but but I, I feel this more this limit of the first nature i take it so wide that it's really uh that uh, these limits are pretty much what uh, then limit the possibility of living on. Mm-hmm. So like when the lungs do no more operate or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not clear he really means it that more kind of expansive way. Cassius, mm-hmm. you, you could read it that way, but does he say anything else that would make you think that he means it in, in the way well, we talk about it now? Well, well uh, the... <laughs> Go ahead, Charles. The the other translations, I think, sort of imply to the direction Cassius was going. We can look at Bailey's. For whenever a thing changes and passes out of its own limits straight away, this is the death of that which was before. And the uh, the Monroe one was very similar to that. That doesn't yeah, clarify what? it for me. Like, but well, where else? Where else in the, the writing does he? The fir- the first answer to that, Elaine, would be that, that what we're talking about comes right before that sentence about the true facts overthrowing false reasoning and no possibility of escape. So I yeah. would kind of assert that that whole passage there, starting with the whole passage about for whoever attempts to make any alteration in the mind or offers to change the nature of any other thing must either add some new parts to it or take off some of the old or else And then the whole rest of the paragraph to the end, to my mind, could be read very broadly to be addressing that philosophical argument of what does it mean to be something? And from one moment to the next, is that right? The the impermanence of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the impermanence of, yeah. Yeah. Change versus the flux 
issue. But the example that you raised earlier, stepping into the stream and how you cannot right. step into the same stream twice. I, you know, it doesn't have to be all read that deeply, but I, I think I it's would possible. like it if you can read it that way. I will say because I like thinking about that. It's real interesting. So, is there ever any? You, you, you think there's enough evidence that he might actually have been saying that? I would say it's pretty strong in my mind that that's okay. Well, that's cool. You know, because the other thing that I link this to is that issue of perfection and purity that I see discussed in Philebus by Plato, because there are several places where they use this argument that something that is perfect cannot be improved, that if it can be improved, then that means it wasn't the best it could be in the first place. They're saying if you can add more to something than than whatever you had before, it wasn't the best possible. And so the best possible, by definition, must be something that cannot be improved. And I know, Elaine, that that is a, a way of looking at it that we talk back and forth about a lot, but some people apparently get into that method of analysis, it seems to me. They define the best as that which cannot be improved. They don't care about any particular examples of of what's good and bad and the particular examples. They're looking to define the words in an absolute way so that they can take that absolute word and have something to apply to other things. So so anyway, that's... I, I would um, I would pull this passage out of this section as something that is relevant, at least, to those other arguments. And I'm saying that Epicurus really didn't necessarily agree with that argument that you should do it that way. But I think he had to face that Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all these other guys who had any prestige at all in Greece, that's basically what they were doing to a significant degree with their platonic idealism. And so there has to be a response to that other than (laughs) that would be one of those areas where I guess you could say, yeah, that's nice. Some people do think that just like you were talking about (laughs) anxiety. But but if you're if you're into that method of thinking. There has to be a an antidote to it that sort of plays in that same field. And um, so anyway, that's probably enough on that, unless Charles has something else. Charles, you want to add something else? No, I don't have anything to it. Well, let's go ahead and finish the last paragraph so we can then just kind of see where, what else we want to talk about today because it's late because of daylight savings time today, especially for Martin. Right. Okay, perishing by degrees. Yeah. So the interesting thing in this last section to me is that this is something we've been talking about on your forum, too, is that he uh, gives more than one possible explanation that Mm -hmm. this this what he's imagining as these these soul seeds could be scattered through the air or it could be huddled up in the middle. So it doesn't for it signifies not whether the soul dies scattered through the air or perishes with its parts contracted into one place. Either way, you come to the same conclusion that the the soul of the person is mortal. And it turns out there's not particles quite like what he's thinking, but it doesn't matter. The soul, the, the human is still mortal. So we've, we've added more options to the mechanisms and the explanations, but we haven't come away with a different ending conclusion. I think what you've just said is very well stated. I, I see where you're going. I think I completely uh-huh. agree. It, it, he's putting out two possibilities, yeah. either of which could be possible based on what we see. But nevertheless, the end result is that the senses are gone and it doesn't make any difference whether it's scattered through the air or just contracts into a ball. The senses are gone. The end result is the same. Yeah. Okay. Who wants to go next? 
Martin, what's your what's your kind of overall from this section? The, the most interesting part? Or? So he, he gives uh, yeah almost atomistic explanation of uh, uh, when we die, then the soul dies with us. Yeah. And he, he comes uh, with a lot of yeah explanatory evidence for this one to visualize this. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Actually, too visual for me already. Too visual, yeah. <laughs> right. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty graphic. <laughs> You know, I think we've hit on today something that needs to turn into a regular theme of our discussions is that there are clearly different approaches that people have. And and you can hear it in our voices ourselves. Obviously, Martin, Elaine, I and Charles come at these things from different directions and have different things that we find to be important to us. And it's interesting to think about how a philosophy will deal with that variety of approach. I don't know that anybody could deal with the variety of approach better than somebody who emphasizes the variety of possible causes. It seems to me that may go hand in hand. But let's begin closing section for today. Um, Martin, you may have just given us what you think is your closing section, but do you have anything else to add for today? No, just watch it. Okay, Charles. Uh, not, not really this time, no. Nothing that's already been said. I don't want to bring us to a close too quickly here if there's something else, because we have I have had a pretty lively session today. There may be other things that people want to say that haven't been said yet. And, of course, we'll come to Elaine. Yeah, I don't think I've left anything. Instead. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, is there anything else in general for today that we should include before we quit? Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for their participation today. Unless anybody has something else, we'll close for the day. So, yeah, thank you, especially for closing on time. Okay, very good. All right, that's all right. It's late over there, so we'll bring it to an end. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Bye.